Welcome to Let It Lope at Large. I'm Let It Lope. Although the 1919 Elaine Race Massacre was probably the bloodiest and deadliest racial confrontation in U.S. history, what actually happened has been deliberately whitewashed and erased. In 2008, J. Chester Johnson was asked by the Episcopal Church to write a formal apology for its role in transatlantic slavery and related evils, and in his research, he came upon a treatise about the Elaine Massacre by historian Ida B. Wells. He also learned that his own beloved grandfather had participated in the massacre, and now he's written a book about these shocking events and their aftermath called Damage His Heritage, Damage Heritage, the Elaine Race Massacre, and a story of reconciliation. It's published by Pegasus Books. I'm very pleased that it brings J. Chester Johnson to our show now. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. I, I'm very pleased to be here. Your book's forward was written by Sheila L. Walker, a descendant of African-American victims of the massacre. How did you meet her? Um, well, it was through a friend, um, actually another writer related, uh, who had uh, spent a little time on the Elaine Race Massacre, and he had had um, he had been in touch with Sheila, um, who was doing her own research because her um, she had uh, had number of ancestors who were victims of the massacre, and as she got older and and spent more time researching it. Um, she was um, she, because of the family background. She was brought into uh, sort of a sphere of interest, and I was in that same sphere of interest. And a friend thought that uh, we should be in contact uh, with each other, which we which we were in um, early uh, 2014, and. Um, Ever since then, we have been on this journey of racial reconciliation, which has sort of a technical flair to the term, but more than that, we um, uh, we just be have become very good friends, and our families have become good friends. She's uh, um, our spouses, respective spouses, uh, have uh, joined in this goal of. Um, of reconciliation, although I hate, in some ways it's gotten, we've moved to, to friendship and and um, our children are involved and we've just become very close friends. So I, I, I sort of stay away from the use of ra racial reconciliation when I'm talking to about the particular relationship that, that, um, that we've developed. Um, now, her, so, her grandmother, her great-grandmother, two granduncles were victims of the massacre. When did you realize that your maternal grandfather, Lonnie Birch, had participated in the massacre? You'd spent um, a few years living with him after your father died. You were very young. But how close were you? I was very close to my uh, maternal grandfather. My father died when I was one. And my mother didn't do particularly well for several years, so I lived with my maternal grandparents. Um, Lonnie had Lonnie, my my maternal grandfather, um, had recently re retired from the Missouri Pacific Railroad, and as my book points out, the Missouri Pacific Railroad was up to its eyeballs in in this in this massacre. But anyway, the, he was he was sort of the singularly most important figure in my life for the first five years of my life, um, and we were 
we were very close during at that time, obviously. But then later on, um, in it was around the time of the Little Rock Central um, integ- the uh, uh, integration of Little Rock Central, which was a, a major racial issue for everyone in in Arkansas. And I was living in a small town with my with my mother and my brother. And my brother had gone off to college. And my mother and I just spent a lot of time talking about race and civil rights and that sort of thing. And um, she began to tell me about this event that um, uh, Lonnie had participated in when she was young. And he and the story related to a very large number. She called it a well-known race riot um, and that there were many African-Americans killed. And she described um, what she reported back, sort of re, recant, re, um, repeated what uh, Lonnie had said about this, uh, about her. His, and the railroad tracks being right next to the cotton fields where the massacre, many, much of the massacre occurred and that sort of thing. Well, and she a, described it in some detail. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, I, I, I'm, I'm, we have so much to talk about uh, here. This is, in fact, there's no way we're going to get to everything. But you published an essay about the massacre in the Green Mountains Review a few years back. Isn't some of the history of the events still unclear? Uh, we do know that it took place on September 30th and October 1st, 1919, at Hoop Spur in the vicinity of Elaine in, in rural Phillips County, Arkansas. But uh, official records of the time um, say that just 11 black men and five white men were killed, while estimates of the actual number of black men, women, and children ranges from 100 to 237. That's by far the deadliest racial confrontation in Arkansas history, perhaps the bloodiest racial conflict in U.S. history. Correct. Um, Well, we do know, um, uh, based on studies that were done by the FBI and the Justice Department um, with respect to the the, the military, uh, federal troops were called in on October the 1st of 1919, um, uh, under the guise that uh, there was a need to quell this black insurrection. about and, and so troops from Fort Pike outside of Little Rock were brought in. And, and they by far uh, contributed to most of the, uh, or caused most of the deaths um, in this massacre. Um, Soon thereafter, within days, the um, FBI and Justice Department sent investigators to interview um, the military and a number of these. Um, and so they, they um, inter- through these interviews, they just determined based upon the count uh, that these that the um, military reported that it was somewhere in the 60 to 80 um, African-Americans were killed. We all, I think, as you referred to um, er, early on, uh, it was clear that between 15 and 20, I think most people agree with it, between 15 and 20 African-Americans were killed 
that first morning of October the 1st, uh, 1919, when uh, posses um, came from the county seat and also up from a lane to Hoops Spur. That, um, and so you, you take the 15 to, to 20, you take the 60 to 80, and then there were these vigilante groups who came from surrounding our, our local communities around um, Phillips County. Plus, there were many people who came from, many white men who came from Mississippi and from Tennessee by way of Memphis. And um, they were vigilantes. And they actually, they, we understand that they sort of killed indiscriminately through the county and there were they killed a lot of African Americans who were not even close to hoop spur, and that's where it becomes extremely difficult to quanti you know to quantify. Um, so I've developed, and others I uh, think that have pretty well confirmed this that. Uh, being killed. Um, although, as you probably have identified in this source, the um, Equal Justice Initiative, um, uh, which showed in, this re in their recent memorial and museum in Montgomery, they used the number of, uh, I think, 234, 237 in, in, in that range. So um, we don't know precisely. We'll never know precisely because a lot of African-Americans left Phillips County after that. They were frightened that maybe there would be a repeat and, and people didn't really spend a lot of time. And on both sides, there was a lot of reticence about talking um, uh, following the massacre. Notices were sent out by county officials telling the African-Americans to be quiet about it. Well, it began uh, on September 29th when representatives of the uh, Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America met with about 100 black farmers at a church near Elaine to discuss how to obtain fair settlements from landowners. And, and that's when the violence broke out? Um, well, uh, yes, it, it, what effectively happened is around 11 o'clock, um, uh, there were representatives from the Missouri Pacific Railroad, one representative from Missouri Pacific Railroad, and the deputy sheriff. And they, um, they arrived. Um, you would think that uh, history would basically show that they were there to disturb this um, this union, which had um, had been developed as a result of for the purpose of improving negotiating capability for the sharecroppers, because cotton prices had gone sky high, and um, the sharecroppers wanted to actually um, be able to get out of debt um, as a result, because it was effectively sort of indentured servitude. But anyway, is when these two white men arrived, um, they started to shoot into the church um, where the meeting was being held. But they didn't realize that the union had hired guards um, 
to stop any interlopers to who tried to break up the um, uh, the meeting, and they fired back, and the Missouri Pacific Railroad agent was killed instantly. Uh, the deputy sheriff was shot in was. about it and that's what um, that's how um, that's how it began now we can't go into details about what happened on those two days in the fall of 1919 the years that followed but it does involve a wide range of participants including uh, some of the people you've mentioned white posses vigilantes federal troops uh, representatives of the Missouri Pacific River the KKK also, one of the founders of the NAACP, Walter F. White, lawyers of both races, including Scipio Africanus Jones. Uh, there were many court cases, ending with a Supreme Court decision, Moore versus Dempsey, which was written by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Uh, but also, we learned that prisoners were tortured. And there, interestingly, there was a report in the New York Times that violence was blamed on, quote, propaganda distributed among the Negroes by white men, and the Times later reported that the source of the trouble was socialist agitators. So this was all about uh, the politics of the time as well? Um, yes, I think it's important to take a view on that. It was soon after the end of World War One, and African Americans had come back, and I'm really referring to the country as a whole. They had come back, expected to be expecting to be treated differently. Um, there, in the summer of 1919, um, violence broke out. Racial violence broke out all over this country, from Arizona to New to New England, and it was much worse in the in the Mississippi River Delta. Now, in addition to the wait, wait, economic, and this follow, excuse me, this follows decades uh, of uh, the highest rate of lynchings across the South. So there was a lot of violence before the post World War One violence of the deadly race riots all across the country, and no then question. Tulsa later, Tulsa later, which uh, is a, a, one of the uh, only race riots that really is remembered well. Yes, that happened in in twenty one, um, uh, on the heels of the of obviously nineteen nineteen. But the this um, um, the economics drove this issue, um, and it had um, so the, the the sharecroppers. Um, had expected, particularly in uh, that they would be, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't be finding themselves in indentured servitude, um, because they would, you know, they would borrow money during the course of the year, and uh, then at the end they would sell their and. I don't know if uh, the audience is having a problem, but I'm having a problem that sometimes you're dropping out. I'm sorry, I don't mean, I'm, I'm continuing to, uh, I'm trying to get, uh, uh, respond to, maybe I'm, I slow down occasionally when I'm not sure whether we should, I should 
continue. I apologize. No, no, the signal dropped out. But basically, what what happened is, as I understand it, uh, the 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 white uh, cotton landowners. This is a majority black area, right? By far, yes. And there it was and, and multiple. It remained, and it remained that way. It had been a cotton center before the Civil War and remained after the Civil War. Had things changed much in the in the fifty four years following the Civil War? Um, oh, so let me let me tell people who I'm talking to before we go on. Uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI, and my guest is Jay Chester Johnson. He's written a fascinating book, a rather disturbing uh, one, called Damaged Heritage: The Elaine Race Massacre and a Story of Reconciliation, published by Pegasus Books. So, had things changed much over those fifty four years? Um, I would say that, um, you know, there was always the period of reconstruction, but which was a short, short lived And Arkansas was part of that when, um, African-Americans did somewhat better in that, in that period of time. But, um, following the end of reconstruction, we had a, we had effectively slavery by another name, which was the, um, which was the sharecropping and, and um, penury or the, um, the sort of quasi-indentured servitude of, of sharecroppers um, being attached to particular pieces of, of land. Now, there were um, white and black sharecroppers, weren't they? Were, were the, the white sharecroppers treated in the same way as the African-American ones were? Um, I, I think that that's pretty clear that they, that they were, um, but there was still the competition that existed between black sharecroppers and white sharecroppers, which were brought, which was this competition being brought forward for generations, uh, following the civil war. Um, which created um, a whole class of people who uh, who um, um, who felt that they were in competition with um, with African Americans. But in terms of the racism, the racism remained predominantly. Um, well, the, the Southern Democratic-dominated Arkansas legislature disenfranchised most blacks and, and many poor whites in the 1890s by creating barriers to voter registration. Um, they had a, a complicated election law, a poll tax amendment, and, of course, the Jim Crow laws. So um, how relevant is that to what happened? Well, it- Actually, what you raise a very interesting point. Arkansas never, never implemented a program that um, uh, that eliminated blacks from voting in the latter part of the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century. And in part, it was the it was the result of work that um, Scipio Africanus Jones did, uh, who was this really dynamic and brilliant attorney from Little Rock who uh, but um, the uh, because 
because blacks were disenfranchised, they couldn't sit on juries. That, well, yes, but by the time this, um, this case had come up, um, there was um, federal law that eliminated they it, at uh, white attorneys in terms of prosecution, uh, at least in Arkansas, in that part of Arkansas, they tried to keep blacks off of the uh, um, off of juries. But um, in fact, Scipio used that against the uh, um, uh, against the prosecutors in his def defense appellate division proposals. And he was able to um, have some trials overturned as a result of, um, of exclusion of uh, any African Amer any attempt to have African Americans serve on juries. Were only African-Americans tried because the majority of people killed were African-Americans? Were any white participants arrested? No, not at all. It was all African-American. And initially they incarcerated about 300 persons. And then they, within a very short time, they weeded this down to, um, uh, to something like 120 and then from the 120, 74 were convicted, 12 for, for murder, and the remain, remainder for uh, lesser crimes from, from second-degree murder to, to night riding. But you, um, the trials were sham trials. I mean, sometimes the, the juries would stay out for only two minutes um, before finding and it was on the basis of these sham trials that more the the case that you mentioned early on, Moore versus Dempsey, made its way to the Supreme Court. Where, um, but that was nineteen twenty three, four yes. years later. Right. Yes, four years later. Uh, but it was that it was that um, um, that case which I have said on numerous occasions that. You know, people think that the uh, civil rights movement started in the 50s and 60s, but with in the absence of Moore versus Dempsey, we must wonder whether Brown versus the Board of Education or subsequent cases would have been put in place because the decision made by the Supreme Court in 23 was the very first time that under due process of law that the um, equal protection was given to all citizens of the United States, drawing on the 14th Amendment, for, which had been passed in 1868. And from 1868 until 1923, the Supreme Court had made the determination that states would have the, uh, would have the right to determine what the civil rights were of the individuals within those states, which obviously gave a great deal of... Um, support for Jim Crow. Um, but because of, of all of the race problems that we've discussed throughout the country, um, uh, the Supreme Court, made, uh, uh, particularly through, uh, through Holmes, felt that there needed to be something done Go ahead. 
determination that uh, um, that the federal government should intercede when the when the local trials are decidedly unfair uh, and where mob rule um, determined the outcome, the federal government should intercede on behalf of those uh, of the appellants. Now, weren't the sharecroppers at a disadvantage also because many were illiterate? There was an unwritten law in the cotton country that the sharecroppers couldn't quit and leave a plantation until their debts were paid. And the period of the year around accounts settlement was frequently the time uh, when of the most lynchings of blacks throughout the South, especially if times were poor economically. Yeah, I think that's, um, you know, that, that's what I was referring to earlier about this um, um, slavery by an, by another name. This was something that uh, just kept um, African Americans in bound to land because if you you still had if you still owed after settlement of the crops, you still owed something to the commissary, then you would um, or would 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 have to stay on the land. You only got your freedom by virtue of of liquidating the um, the debt at the at the commissary, um, and so this became a um, you know a major motivation for the sharecroppers in uh, around Hoop Spur in in um, setting up the lodge, the Hoop Spur Lodge of the Progressive Farmers and Household. Household Union. So the, um, uh, the Robert L. Hill, a black farmer, was the founder of the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America, and he worked with these farmers to quote better obtain better payments for their cotton crops from the white plantation owners who dominated the area during the Jim Crow area uh, era. Black sharecroppers were often exploited in their efforts to collect payment for their cotton crops. But interestingly, the union hired a white law firm. Uh, from the capital of Little Rock to represent the black farmers. Um, how did the, the white landowners respond to that? Well, um, they this the law firm ended up disbanding after um, uh, after the experience of the uh, of the massacre. Um, the head of the firm went to Michigan and. Um, and practice law in in Michigan, but stayed very active in in civil rights. Um, so a concern that um, because because a representative of the white firm was there on the night of the um, uh, the night of the formalization of the lodge of the uh, hoop spur that uh, this person should be arrested as well. Um, there was a threat of lynching, uh, a large lynching on Thursday, the three days after the, the first um, gunfire had, had occurred. And uh, there was expectation that if there was going to be a lynching, the, the white attorney would be uh, would be lynched along with the uh, sharecroppers, but the plutocrats in town um, 
prevailed upon the lynching uh, mob that uh, that they had issues well in hand. The organizers of this union would be summarily executed. Um, and but as it turned out, the white attorney was able to escape um, and make it make his way back to um, make his way back to Little Rock. And uh, actually, the court said the, uh, the the trials had been fair because there had been no lynchings, which is kind right. of ridiculous. But the only men prosecuted for the events were 122 African-Americans, 73 charged with murder. Did any were any of them? executed uh, on murder charges or were they all freed eventually within five years all um of the uh, the sharecroppers who were found guilty were free and it's really a function of the brilliance and tenacity of uh of scipio africanus you're listening to leonard located at lunch dedicated I dedicated the, uh, you know, the book, uh, the book to, to him. Uh, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. So they just moaned it out. Before we get back to my conversation with J. Chester Johnson, my executive producer, Jesse Lent, uh, joins us to, uh, because he has a very important message for you. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. How are you? Uh, it's, it's great to be here, everyone. Yes, as you've been hearing on this show, on the other shows on WBAI, we are currently in the midst of our spring fun drive. Now, this Spring Fun Drive is obviously one that will be forever implanted in our memories mm-hmm. because of the pandemic. As we all know, all independent media and publicly funded media across the country has been hurt very hard by the coronavirus. But as a listener-sponsored 
completely non-corporate supported radio station, WBAI, is in a particularly precarious position. In other words, we don't have any get out of free jail, uh, get out of jail free cards. We don't accept corporate underwriting. We don't have matching funds. We don't have federal dollars. All we have is the support of listeners like you. So if you want to help keep this show on the air, uh, we're going to ask you to make a contribution of any amount by going to give to wbai.org that's give then the number two wbai.org or by calling 516-620-3602 and as leonard mentioned i do have an exciting announcement which is for the last uh, several days on the show, we had been promoting a My Dinner with Leonard event where uh, the first 10 listeners to sign up and become BAI buddies got to spend an evening with Leonard uh, virtually, a, a teleconference uh, with nine other listeners. Well, we we sold out. That is the exciting news. And the second bit of exciting news is that Leonard has agreed to do another call, a second call. You know, we didn't want to just uh, balloon this call up because and, and have, you know, 20, 30 people in the call, because the whole idea is so that you get a little bit of personal time with Leonard, a chance to interact with him and interact with some of his list, uh, some of your fellow listeners, which uh, Leonard, I'm sure is something that you're looking forward to as well. Sure. Uh, it's a great way to communicate directly with my listeners during this pandemic uh, and during a time when, as you can hear during the show, which uh, I think is uh, about a fascinating topic, we also have some technical difficulties and they we probably wouldn't be having them under normal circumstances. But uh, we, uh, we're asking you to come through, help us uh, make the station as good as it can be and actually just keep it going. Uh, but whether you join me for dinner or um, the important thing is whatever level you feel comfortable contributing at, the, the only way to, to keep Leonard Lopez at large on the air and coming to you on weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. is by calling right now 516-620-3602 or by going to our website give to wbai.org. That's give and then the number two wbai.org. Many now, listeners Leonard feel, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, you've met so many listeners and have so many fans across the country and across the world. I was just curious, what 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 are some of the more interesting questions that you've been asked by your listeners over the years? Well, some of them are aware of uh, the people I have interviewed over the years, and they want to know what Barack Obama or, or Joe Biden or Henry Kissinger or uh, Tom Hanks or Catherine Deneuve or whatever what, what they were like, uh, what were some of the things we, we talked about off the air. They want to know whether I had any uh, techniques for, for relaxing a guest. Uh, they want to know whether it's different, whether I'm doing a show with the guest in the studio or over the phone. And right now, uh, every show we do is, uh, is done remotely, unfortunately. Uh, but, and whatever occurs to them, there are just so many things that uh, different people uh, think about. And I'm happy to talk about them as long as you don't get too personal. <laughs> right. It's it's Zoom, so we never know when anyone's recording, right? <laughs> but yes, any of those questions would be on the table if there was something you saw in a segment that you've no. always wanted to ask Leonard about, or even just his own And how uh, we put the show process. together. How we put oh, the show together, and what Jesse exactly does, what things say. like that. Yes. But remember, <laughs> yeah. whether you... you uh, 
would like to join me for dinner or whatever, you know, the important thing is to give us that call, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give2wbai.org. And many listeners feel that a great way to support the station without having to shell out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. Uh, That's what will get you uh, invited to this dinner. Uh, BAI buddies... um, contribute $10, $15, $20 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do. And if you sign up right now to become a BAI buddy in the name of London Lopez at Large, you will have that option of joining me and nine of your fellow listeners to this special teleconference we're calling My Dinner with Leonard. But attendance is limited, so please sign up to become a BAI buddy now. And be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large. Uh, anything else you want to add to that, Jesse? I just wanted to say that uh, let our listeners know a little, uh, let let everyone in on a little bit behind the scenes action. We are working, our, our crack technical staff is working to get the connection resolved for the second half of the show. So we're hoping ho- that the second half of H. Chester Johnson, uh, this interview about this fascinating, uh, overlooked, historically important event uh, will be much more clear and consistent. But I just before we sign off here or before I sign off, should I say, uh, I just want to to sort of put a, 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 a to underline what you were hearing for the last half an hour and just say that, look, this is what it sounds like to be doing radio on a wing and a prayer here. If you've watched CNN or MSNBC or any of the big uh, major even network news broadcast, you've seen uh, how sort of DIY they are, are looking. That is with millions of dollars, virtually unlimited corporate advertising dollars. We don't have any of that. We are making do with just the ingenuity of people like mm-hmm. uh, Michael G. Haskins uh, on the operations staff, a familiar name to anyone at BAI, or our own engineer, Reggie Johnson, uh, the, the engineer we're lucky enough to fall in his uh, work schedule. So uh, li- another name all our listeners know. So in other words, uh, we're just doing this with our own ingenuity and your generosity. So one last time, please make that call. 516-620-3602 is the number, or you can go to the website, give to WBAI.org. That's give them the number two. If you become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $10 or more a month, you can, uh, you have the option to attend a teleconference uh, with with Leonard Lope, what we're calling My Dinner with Leonard, uh, where you can ask him anything you want and and get a chance to meet nine fellow listeners so please step up and and become a bai buddy uh in the name of leonard lopez at large to 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 get that uh thank you gift but whatever level you donate at thank you from all of us at the show and all of us at the station and i'm really looking forward to meeting you all thank you jesse thanks leonard and uh we're returning now to jay chester johnson his book Damaged Heritage, The Elaine Race Massacre, and a Story of Reconciliation, published by Pegasus Books. Now, you um, you have talked about, uh, uh, you explained some of the reasons this has been deliberately a race uh, chapter in American history. You say, filiopietism, an ex- excessive reverence of the past, has been a major factor. In what way? Um. 
Well, I apply it to a continue the use of filiopietism um, to a continuation of, um, of black subjugation and and racism from generation to generation. Um, my own view is that um, uh, that my ancestors, for example, not just related to the massacre, but as a general matter, um, knew that the way in which they were treating African Americans um, was wrong, um, and that's the damaged heritage that they inherited, but that. Oh, Filiopietism, this excessive veneration of ancestors and, and tradition, uh, has masked, it's uh, inoculated, it's camouflaged the, um, the damaged heritage, the, the violence and the vulgarity of the damaged heritage of continued raci- racism. And, uh, and, it, and we're seeing it even we're seeing it even today with uh, yes. people carrying Confederate flags, the, the, the protests over the uh, taking down of Confederate monuments. Uh, this is a battle that's been going on way for a very long time. We're talking about 100 years after the the uh, the massacre. Yes, I mean, you're exactly right. And, and but it's fascinating to me that that. The individuals who have perpetrated this continual continuation of of black subjugation um, uh, have not made the connection between, uh, or have generally not made the at least conscious um, recognition that what is actually being done is they're using these contraptions or apparatus of um, of excessive uh, veneration. To um, to justify what they do from generation to generation in the continuation of of um, of, of racism, and so I I see the connection between damaged heritage, which is this um, which is this inheritance of of um, uh, of racism in in sort of its it, its most vulgar form, and then and, and the role in which this um, excessive veneration work in tandem. Because in the absence of filiopietism, I don't think we would have had the continuation. Because I think people would have seen over time and have experienced over time the sort of this this bloody representation of of what racism really was without something to to hide behind to hide it to justify it and it has been that excessive veneration that has given the the excuse the camouflage the cover for generations of of and this is not just southern but uh, predominantly the most glaring is in the south or has been in the south um, but it's not just local. It's not but just how, lo- located in the South. How strong was the racial divide uh, in the years you were growing up in small town Arkansas in the, the 40s and 50s? Were you seen as a rebel when you made friends with some of your African-American neighbors? Um, not at, not initially. When I first moved to Monticello, I, there were no whites on my street. We lived on sort of the other side of 
the tracks, and I became close. You're talking about Monticello, Arkansas, not Monticello, That's New York. That's correct. Because you did right. move to New York at one point. Yes, exactly. Two I moved to the city, to New York City, yeah, um, and that's my home now. I've been here for many, for many decades. But when I, when I was very young, and family moved to Monticello, Arkansas, that I became friends with a lot of African Americans. But I, no one criticized me at that, with that, at that time. Of course, that was before we were, right at the time uh, that segregation separated us. I mean, there was, I think that what happened is that while there wasn't criticism, is that they knew that institutionalized segregation would fix this, that I would ultimately be separated from my black friends and, um, and, and I would make other friends at the white school, which actually that's what, that's what happened. And I, I lost total contact with my African-American friends over, um, over the years. But you do have a really interesting history. You left the South when you served as a page in the House of Representatives, uh, later attended Harvard, returned to the South for a time before you decided to move to New York City. Uh, and then you returned to your hometown in Arkansas to teach school at an all-African-American school. And you decided to run for mayor of Monticello. <laughs> Did you have a chance? Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, I had a decent chance, but because we knew that there would be a large number of African Americans who would be voting, voting for me, um, and that maybe I would pull a few uh, white votes. I mean, I had discussions with people in the black community before ever running for the office because I didn't want to be running just just for running purposes. But we felt I had a decent shot, and I. And I and I did okay. I mean, I wasn't you know trounced. And um, mm-hmm. um, but actually, what happened is uh, people got a little nervous about my candidacy, sort of the plutocrats in town. And there was a um, a former politician who was very popular, who had been the county judge, and and um, they brought him out of retirement, and he ran against me, and um, and. Um, he uh, he he won the election, but uh, it was um, it was a good exercise. I'm glad I did it. And, um, and meanwhile, um, you had a very interesting career. You you worked for J.P. Morgan, then the Carter administration, as deputy assistant secretary of the U.S. Treasury Department. You're the author of several poetry collections. Uh, you are uh, you retranslated the Psalms to the Book of Common Prayer with with W. H. Auden. Yes. That's right. Wow, that must have been a thrill. <laughs> yeah, well, he, um, we actually didn't do it at the very same time. He, this was a twelve-year project, uh, and he served on the drafting committee from 1968 until um, 1971, and then I replaced him in 1971, and I stayed on as the poet um on the drafting committee until 1979 when the new book of common prayer including our psalms which have actually become some of a standard um, um since that time of being included in the book of common prayer but he he left uh new york 
around the time that he resigned from the uh, from the committee. Um, so you didn't get to when, speak work with him. Uh, well, side not by much, side. but we we had, we had correspondence. In fact, I I wrote a book which was published in 2017 called Auden, the Psalms, and Me, and it um, it it includes correspondence that he and I had about uh, um, about the the retranslation and what it should what should be done and what shouldn't be done, and he had very strong opinions about. Uh, about that and he was uh, he was disturbed mostly about not so much the trans- retranslation of the psalms but changes that were going into effect for the book of common prayer both of his um grandparent grandfathers were anglican clerics or and uh, so he was steeped in that and he he actually considered that a big chunk of his uh his talent was um, was read, was a result of a reflection of his being reared in the language of the Book of Common Prayer. And, we have uh, just a minute left, so I, and I want to address one other thing. The Elaine Massacre Memorial was dedicated this past September, uh, just six months ago. Uh, what's been its impact to date? Has the town reconciled itself to uh, this this awful history? Well, um, are there still some people in the area? Wait, let me finish. Are there still some people in the area who claim that the Progressive Farmers and Household Union of America was a socialist enterprise and, quote, established for the purpose of banding Negroes together for the killing of white people? Well, that was one of the rumors at the time of the massacre that 21 of the uh, white planters were supposed to be murdered as a result of this black this fake uh, um, insurrection, which, you know, no one has any any documentation to prove. And yes, there are descendants of the uh, of the white planners. And yes, there is um, uh, the white narrative is repeated now and then. But but that's even that's even dying out. I I think we we had very little. I was uh, the co-chair of the memorial committee. Um, we had actually very little resistance to the, this massacre. There are all kinds of reasons you could apply, but I actually believe that it was primarily um, a sense in the community that there needed to be a reconciliation of these events that go back a hundred years. One African American man said, um, we keep sweeping this under the rug, but then we stumble over the rug. And I think that was, I, I think that was re- representative of, and, and for, you know, I've heard these stories about, uh, that, um, people leave flowers on an ongoing basis at the, uh, at the memorial, which I find to be a very sensitive and, and constructive. Jay Chester Johnson's his book is called Damaged Heritage, The Elaine Race Massacre and a Story of Reconciliation. It's published by Pegasus Books. It's been a great pleasure talking with you today. Uh, well, and, now, and now uh, all your neighbors in New York will know about what happened in, your, in, in the area that you grew up in. Thanks again. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an honor. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. 
We're available as an iTunes podcast, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Before I sign off today, I want to take a moment to remind you that we are asking you to support WBAI. All independent media have been put into a difficult position because of the pandemic, but as a small public radio station that relies solely on the generosity of our listeners, we don't take ads, we don't take any foundation grants, it's just our listeners, and always has been for the 60 years our station has been in existence, but that Because of that, WBAI finds itself in a particularly difficult spot, and that's why we're asking our most concerned listeners to please step up right now and go to our website, give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org. Or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this uh, WBAI, this radio station, and let it locate at large on the air, community broadcasting on the air. One great way to support the station is to give us the kind of uh, ongoing support we need throughout the year, and that's to become a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy. And you can do that by making a monthly contribution of any amount, $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with. And again, the number is 516-620-3602. Or you can go to our website, give2wbai.org. And um, as Jesse and I were talking about earlier, if you sign up right now to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, you will have the option of attending the second My Dinner with Leonard event, a, a private teleconference with 10 listeners. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, 10, 15, or or 20 or more a month, it all goes a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you this show. So please be sure to make your contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at Lodge. And from all of us at the station, thank you. We are off tomorrow, but please join us on Wednesday when we will be welcoming our favorite sibling language experts, Catherine and Ross Petrus, back to our show. Thursday, I'm sorry. We'll see you on Thursday.